If you would, turn your, take your Bibles and turn to Romans 1, please. <clears throat> and if I've asked you to be here for three Sundays, this is the third Sunday. So I'm sure there will be a subsequent stoning that will take place out in the parking lot. Just kidding. And by the way, this will be pretty much a mature audience thing. I apologize. It is the third one, and the children's church should be ready for that. So um, it's not going to be as risky as the last two. Uh, but it will be talking pretty bluntly about um, situations that the Bible addresses. So uh, you can use your discernment as a parent of whether or not you want your child to be here for that. Terry, do you want Emily to be here for that? Okay, okay, just to make sure. Okay, just to make sure. And no. Anyway, Romans chapter one, and I want us to read sixteen and seventeen together. Let me explain a little bit to make sure that we don't miss it. And then we will move over into 26 and 27 and we'll move forward, okay? So let's read 16 and 17 together if we can. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, if you have ever studied the book of Romans, and everyone talks about how it is the uh, greatest Paul, uh, letter that Paul's ever written, and they will talk about how it gives you a full understanding of salvation, it very much does so. But the subject of this letter is not about how to go to heaven when you die. That is not the subject. The subject of this letter is how can you avoid the passive wrath of God against every person, believer or non-believer, who tries to cover up the truth by unrighteous means. And the way to do that is to live by faith. And when you live by faith, you are then exhibiting the righteousness of God in your life. Does that make sense? So when we see this word salvation here in verse 16, we often have the automatic response that we're always thinking, go to heaven when you die when we see salvation. Salvation has many more meanings than just that. And this is talking about how to be saved from God's wrath against us because we are harboring sin. We are holding fast to sin. And every single person is guilty because of sin. Are we good on that? Okay. So now let's move into 26 and 27 because God gives them over because of their refusal to honor or thank Him or acknowledge Him. It says, verse 26, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. Dishonorable is the idea. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which was unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Lesbianism and homosexuality. It is an evidence that God's passive wrath is upon a culture of people. 
It is an indicator. It is a way to lick your finger and hold it to the wind and tell where the climate of reality is going. And when you do that, you find out it's all downhill. How many people have ever done any research on Alexander the Great? Incredible general. Came up with a language that unified people in such a way that his commands could never be misconstrued. And in in fact, it's the language that the New Testament is written in. And in moving this entire army forward, he wept because there was nothing left to conquer by the time he was 26 years old. Anybody know how he died? Sexually transmitted disease. Because he was engrossed in this type of living. That culture had God's passive wrath upon it. And everything fell apart after his death, slowly, but then the Romans came in and took over. Everything that we are dealing with right now, when we look at our culture, may seem new to you. It may seem, oh my gosh, the world's never been this bad. Let me tell you something. The world has always been this bad in different places. It's just because of a greater range of communication that we have available now, we're much more aware of it. But these terrible things have been going on ever since. Paul wrote about it. That was 2,000 years ago. So it's going on at his time. But what you see is the moral degrading that happens in a culture determines whether or not it stands or falls before a righteous God who sets the standard. Now, out on the Welcome Center, with the many things that are there for your information, I have this. This is something called Grace Notes, and this is by a man named Dr. Charlie Bean. And he graciously puts these out uh, every so often. This one is about the Christian and the law. What is the Christian's relationship to the law? It's front and back. It's a real easy but informative read that will help you understand because a lot of what we are going to be talking about today is going to be the law's relationship in dealing with the situation. So what I'm going to ask you to do is turn over to chapter 3 of Romans. Is the Christian under the law? No. Not in any way, shape, or form. We are not under the moral law. We are not under the ceremonial law. In fact, the law, whenever it's determined by context, usually refers to the law not being broken up into different facets. It's all one unit. Some people want to divide it up and say, well, we're under this part, but we're not under this part. No. Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every person who believes. If you believe, you have been set free from the penalty that the law could have against you. But what we need to ask the question is, is what is that penalty of the law? Because not every person believes, or even when a believer gets out of line into sin, they find that the law accuses them and exposes that sin. So we need to be aware of this and identify it. Everybody stick with me. Anybody confused yet? Okay, I'm going to daringly ask you to raise your hand so you can ask questions if we get weird, okay? We may be here a little longer, but if you raise your hand, I can blame you with the children's church people and not me, and that really helps a lot. So, hey, the concept of a scapegoat is is biblical. So, let's move on. Chapter 3, verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, now stop for a second, and let's, let's make sure we understand this. The law was given to Israel. The law is God's written perfection. If you want to know what a perfect society would look like, 
It is a society that abides by the standard that God has put forward, and he did so for Israel so that Israel would be his light to the pagan nations. The law was never set forward as a means where if you will just do this, then God will accept you and you can go to heaven when you die. No. Everyone needs blood atonement to be accepted before God because we are completely unrighteous in ourselves. But the law is very much telling Israel, here's how you can have an enhanced, deeper relationship with the God and creator of all things by following his commands and his statutes. That's why we see that over and over and over in the Old Testament. But the law has a massive function that stretches cross-culturally over the whole world. And here's what it is. Now, whatever we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Notice it's for the Jews. But look what it says. So that every mouth, Jew or Gentile, every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Now, when you think about that word accountability, two things should come to your mind. There is obviously a standard of which I am accountable to. And there is an authority that implemented that standard of which I need to answer to. Everybody agree? How many people have got a speeding ticket before? You know this so well, right? Very much so. So we get the idea of authority, law, structure, standards. We get it. Sorry, verse 20. Because, here's the reason, by the works of the law, and if you want to underline this so you don't forget it, no flesh will be justified in his sight. You cannot be declared righteous in the sight of God by rule keeping, by a grocery list, by a checklist to make sure that you've accomplished This is not some spiritual cosmic scavenger hunt that you just need to muster up enough willpower and get enough people involved so that God will accept you. Apart from Jesus Christ, God accepts nothing. That's how holy he is. He is so above and beyond what we can understand. We can't even think like him or begin to. Because of how holy and righteous he is. And our best attempts at trying to earn his favor are just further heaping upon our depravity and a testimony of the sin that we just exude as people. He is righteous. And I think one of the greatest problems we have in the Church of America is we have forgotten what righteousness means and we have forgotten to take sin seriously. You may sit here this morning. In fact, let me just jump on the soapbox for a second. You may sit here this morning and you might think, you know what, I don't feel that my relationship with Jesus Christ is that great. Maybe it's just not all that it should be or whatever. Yeah, I'm coming to church and that's cool. I dug my Bible out of the back, you know, sitting up next to the back window and I'm here and that kind of thing. Let me tell you this. Your relationship with Jesus Christ becomes great when you start seeing your sin as God talks about your sin. Why is that? Because your sin is so exceedingly grave. My sin is so exceedingly grave that I had to be rescued by another. And that is a humbling proposition. 
that makes me realize because my sin is great, my Savior is great. Everybody seeing the sign out here? Your sin is great, but your Savior is infinitely greater. There's the appreciation for Jesus Christ. And if for some reason we have lost that, dare I say the word, feeling about our intimacy with Jesus, it might be because we've so softened our stance against our personal sin so that we will just feel okay in our wretchedness for a little while that we stopped looking to him for rescue every day. That's a scary place to be. Jesus Christ is great. And he didn't just save you for eternity. He wants to save you daily. He wants to keep you from sinful patterns daily, sinful thoughts daily, sinful admissions daily. He wants to cleanse this mind like we don't even know. And I tell you what, until you experience the renewing of the mind through Scripture, you will sit there and scratch your head and say, I don't even know if that's possible. Let me tell you something. It is. It is. My brain was so dirty at one time, I tried to stick a pipe cleaner in my ear to clean it out. You believe that? No. I'm so- <laughs> Thank you, Roxanne. <laughs> that's not totally true. But that's what needed to happen. It's what needed to happen. It is only by taking in the word that our mind is renewed. So notice this, the whole world is guilty. No flesh, no one living will be declared righteous by God by keeping the law. It's not because the law is bad, it's because we are so bad. The law is perfect. So look what it says. For, here's the reason why, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. How do you know what is sinful? The law tells you. How do you know that you deserve that speeding ticket? Because you went over the standard that was clearly posted for your knowledge. Everybody got that? Guilty. Guilty as charged. What does the law do cross-culturally all over the world? It shows us our sin. And it shows us just how sinful we are. Now, how do we handle this? Everybody, take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy. Some of you have said, I have trouble following you. You talk really fast. Today is not going to be an exception. We have a lot of scripture to get through. So please, if for some reason you need to go back and listen, please do. Please do. 1 Timothy chapter 1. The problem here, Paul is writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, who he has sent to Ephesus to get that church in order, uh, which should really tell us something about how far reaching sin can be. Uh, Paul spent three years in Ephesus setting that church up, loving those people, nurturing those people, discipling those people, and they still needed more people to be sent to them to keep them in line, okay? So let's have a little bit of grace in the situation. But the problem is, is he had some people that wanted to get up and they wanted to preach thinking that they knew how to use the law and they were actually using it unlawfully. And let me tell you how somebody uses the law unlawfully is they want to begin to heap legalism upon you in order to keep you down in order to tell you that there is something required of you in order for God to accept you, or that if you were really saved, you would be doing these things. If someone tells you that you must be doing something in order to be really saved, they're telling you, number one, that they are the judge of your salvation, which is completely wrong because they got enough breaking of the law on their own. But number two, that there is something that must be added to Christ in order for God to accept you. Those are dangerous grounds. Because what that's telling me is that we need to set up a little cross next to Christ and jump up on it so that the salvation work is complete. 
that doesn't make Jesus a sufficient Savior. So let's not run into that problem. So Paul wants to correct this, and he's very plain about it. Now watch this, verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, if one uses it correctly or rightly. This is the right use of the law. Okay, Paul, how do we use the law correctly as New Testament Christians who are set free from the of the law, and Christ is who we claim is our righteousness? Verse 9. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person. And this doesn't mean for someone who is justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. It is talking about someone who is living a life that is morally upstanding. Or we would say it in Romans vernacular, someone who is living by faith and therefore displaying righteousness in their life. Guess what? The law has no bearing on you. It has no claim on you. Why? Because it's not able to show you sin because you're walking in righteousness with God. But what does happen? Here it is. But for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And here's something that's extremely interesting because then Paul gets a little bit more specific with this. And when he does this, he starts bringing in direct violations of the law that was given to Moses. So I will name them off for you. Watch this. For those who kill fathers and mothers that's the fifth commandment uh, for murderers there's the sixth commandment and immoral men this word is the word pornois which is the word we get for pornography when the new american standard version uses the word immoral in these situations it is talking about sexual immorality it is talking about the handling of your body in relationship to something or someone else that is outside of the God-ordained confines of the marriage relationship. Now let me go ahead and clear this up quickly. Pornography and looking at pornography is adultery. You need to know that clearly. Is that not what Jesus said? If you even look at someone with lust... You've already committed that sin in your heart. You are already committed an adulterer. Period. Is it really that strict? It is. Why? Because holiness is that true. Righteousness is that serious. God is that serious about it. So when we deal with the idea of sexual immorality, that includes anything that would be utilizing our bodies in a lustful way that is apart from what God has said. So notice, there's where the law should be used. That right there, shall not commit adultery, that's the seventh commandment. And homosexuals, seventh commandment. And here's what's interesting about this word, homosexuals. It means sexual activity with those who abuse themselves. This is the, this is the Greek lexicon definition. For those who abuse themselves with others of the same sex. And what's interesting about this definition, especially in this culture and time, is that it actually expands the meaning to include under its umbrella, because of the problem they were having in pagan culture at that time, the idea of children being active in that situation. That's how insane it was. That's how far-reaching it was in order to cover that, to say, yes, the law declares you as completely guilty before a holy God. Now notice after this, it says... And kidnappers. Some translations say man-stealers. 
How do kidnappers end up in here? Well, kidnappers is a violation of the eighth commandment. And liars, the ninth commandment. Perjurers, the ninth commandment. That's somebody who makes an oath and then breaks it. And whatever else is contrary is opposed to sound teaching. In fact, it's interesting, out of everything that they named here about the relationship between one another that was brought up, only the breaking of the Sabbath and covetousness were not covered here. But Paul saw a need to want to refer to specific sins that violated the law of God. Does everybody see why that's important? God is setting the standard and he is telling us in a bright flashing light, this is wrong. Now what do we do now? Let's do a case study. 1 Corinthians 5. And we are going to cover five and six in the span of 30 minutes, which you know that means 40 minutes. Five and six. I seriously want to be respectful of everybody's time. Please don't think that I don't. But this material is so important for us to understand in light of what we're dealing with in our culture and the mindsets that we're dealing with. And let me say something real quick about the widespread acceptance of sexual sin. Everybody been following the news? You familiar with the Jeffrey Epstein situation? Anybody think it's odd that he was put in an isolated cell on suicide watch with cameras on him that just happened to malfunction at the right time and he committed suicide? Anybody see a list of some of the people that he hung out with? Anybody think they had something to do with it? See what I'm saying? We will suppress the truth no matter the cost. We have people who will kill another human being just so that their dirt is not brought to light. Let me ask you a question. If what they're doing is not wrong, why do they care if it's being brought to light? Everybody see how the truth testifies against them. It's important for us to see this biblically, man. It is. The media or the culture would try to dupe us on that. What garbage? What do you mean? Yeah. Hmm? Yes. What do you say? You know, that's a tragic situation. That's an insane situation. That whole thing is just, it's crazy. All right. Chapter five, verse one. And I, every time I come across the word immoral or immorality, I'm going to say sexual immorality so that you understand that is what the word is dealing with. And it's always a form of the word porneia or pornos is the idea. Okay. It's what we're dealing with here. Paul is very flat out about what's going on. So it's actually reported, now stop for a second, let's get our bearings. Corinth is the church that seems to be virtually on spring break all the time, okay? Remember that. They are a very troubled church, they're like, yay, it's good to be free in Christ, but we're going to divide over these certain things, I'm better than you because such and such baptized me, and hey, look, it's the Lord's Supper, let's eat and drink, oh no, here's the people that really needed that, I'm sorry we ate it all, man, it was really good. They're really bad people, okay? However, Paul never questions their salvation one time in this entire letter. Not one time. And why is that? Because their salvation isn't based on what they've done. Their salvation is based on what Christ has done. So let's keep the work where it belongs on the cross, okay? Chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and sexual immorality is such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, even amongst the godless pagans is what they're saying here. That someone has his father's wife. That's a direct violation of Leviticus 20, verse 11. Let's use the law and talk about it. 
someone is shacking up with their stepmother. That's a strange situation. But that's not just the bad part about it. Look what it says after this. Verse 2. You have become, what's the word? Arrogant. In fact, if you have a, uh, a little marker there next to the word arrogant, notice it says puffed up. The people, notice he's not writing to the guy who committed the sin. He's writing to the church. You as a church have become prideful, puffed up, boisterous about the fact that this guy is involved in this relationship. You haven't condemned it. You've accepted sexual immorality as something to be applauded in the body of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but that sends little tremors through my being because that's what I'm seeing in other churches taking place right now is the applauding of declared sinfulness in God's word and then twisting scripture to try to get around it. I guarantee you the pastors there preach from rubber Bibles. Whatever you need to do to make it work. It's insane. We have an epidemic problem. The church in America is actually being okay with sexual sin, permitting it. It's fine. It's good. Nothing's wrong. It's love. Man, love is a distorted banner to put these things under. So notice, you're arrogant. You have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. Now stop for just a second. This is church discipline. Church discipline. Someone that is involved in a relationship like this should have a face-to-face conversation of saying, I'm sorry, as long as you are involved in this, you are not welcome in the body of Christ. Are they still part of the body of Christ? Yeah, they didn't lose their salvation, but they did lose their fellowship amongst fellow believers. Why? Because you can't tolerate sin in the church. Now let's look at this. Verse 3, For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him. (gasps) You're not supposed to judge people. You are when they're Christians. You're not judging them of whether or not they're saved or unsaved. That's none of our business. That's God's business. Our judgment is to ask the question, are you pursuing a relationship with Jesus Christ? Is your life moving towards sanctification? Being set apart from the world, what sanctification means, being set apart from the world and more set unto God as we seek to walk in a way that his word commands instead of the philosophies and politics of this world. Are we set out to do that? Paul has already judged this guy. He needs to be removed. And notice, I've already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, when you get together to have church, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan. (gasps) He must be unsaved. No. But let me ask you a question. When we are willingly committing sin in our life, does that have more to do with Satan or God? Didn't Jesus look at Peter and say, get behind me, Satan? Peter just confessed that he was the Christ, the son of the living God, five verses before that. Either Jesus was bipolar or he knew something serious. 
He knew that what the ultimate underlying activity that was going on here is that Satan was trying to get a foothold in a situation. And it's no different in the church. So if he wants to conduct himself and steward his body in such a way as to where it is more in line with the tactics that Satan would use to spoil the church, then you cast him out of the church for the preservation of the body of Christ and let him degrade himself in the way that his flesh and his lust wants to point him. That doesn't sound very loving. If you think that right now, you do not understand what love is in the scriptures. Being truthful with someone about the wrong that they are in is one of the most loving things you can do. And you don't have to be a jerk about it. You don't have to be mean about it. All you have to do is be truthful. Because that's all that really God asks for us to operate in community as a church. Don't go on lying to one another. Be truthful with another one another. Tell the truth. Tell the truth to this guy about his sin. Notice, I've decided to deliver one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Because sin leads to what? Are we sure? That seemed kind of confusing here. Sin leads to what? It leads to death. Period. The outcome of those things done in the flesh is death. It has no worth before a holy God. None. So if this is the direction he wants to go, and there is nothing beneficial that he is pouring into the community of the body of Christ, send him out. Let him do what he wants to do. Or let's say this, give him over to those desires as God gave them over to their desires. Look what it says. Deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Is he still going to heaven? Yes, he is, because there's no amount of sin that he can have that can overcome or overturn the grace of God. It's impossible. We're not talking about a break in his relationship with Jesus. We're talking about a severe fracture that has been nurtured by the leadership of the church in his fellowship with Jesus. So the church needs to repent of them applauding sexual immorality. And they need to call this guy to task to repent from this sin and get back in fellowship with the Lord, confess it before him, or if this is the direction that he wants to go, then fine, you can do that, but you need to do it somewhere else, not here. We won't have it. It's not part of the body of Christ. There's nothing holy about it. So now watch this, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Anybody ever bake bread? And I'm not talking about your bread maker at Walmart, okay? I'm talking about you for real deal, baked bread. Okay. How much leaven do you need to get through there? Not much, do you? And it gets all throughout, does it not? Notice what Paul's saying. If you let this little bit go, you can be guaranteed that it will spread like gangrene to every other person. Well, everybody's okay that he's doing it. I guess that means I can do it. Isn't that exactly what our flesh is looking for? A reason to justify the sin that our dark hearts desperately want to participate in? Let's be honest with ourselves, guys. That's what I'm looking for. He seems to be doing okay with that. I wonder if I could do that. Get away with it. We're always looking for a way to suppress the truth that we've been called to so that we can gratify self. That's a scary place to be. And it's okay to admit 
That's the very sin we need to be saved from, those types of things. That's why we need to continually look to Christ. Only He is righteous. Only He is righteous. So notice, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Get rid of the sin so that you're pure is the idea. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Notice that he says, as you are already unleavened, or you really are unleavened. In other words, let's say it this way. Because you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your position before him is one of holiness and blamelessness and righteousness. When you came to faith in Christ, God put on the Jesus-colored glasses, and he now sees you as without spot or blemish in his sight positionally before him. But in our practice and our, uh, uh, what do we want to say, daily living experience, that's not the case. We don't equal up to a faultless position. And this is where the sanctification process takes place. It is by the intaking of the word and the indwelling Holy Spirit creating a fire within us that changes us from the inside out to be more conformed to the image of Christ. But if that process is not taking place, you are not acting according to reality of who you truly are and what God says about you. Does that make sense? And so notice, you already are unleavened as a church. But when you allow this mess to go on over here, you are operating in a fantasy land. You are in a place that does not correspond to the eternal reality that Jesus has secured for you on the cross. You're out of step. You're out of whack. Everybody got that? Okay, great. So moving on here, verse 8. Therefore... Let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, not bringing our sin to the table, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness. Now pause for a second, because I want you everybody to put on your Mortimer Schnurd caps and turn them on. Here we go. Notice, why would Paul say, don't try to celebrate this feast with one another, this meal with one another, with malice and wickedness, if it were not a possibility that Christians could do that? Does everybody see that? So notice, he is warning them against the possibility of them bowing again to the sin master that they used to have over their lives before they knew Jesus Christ. And he's saying, no, you don't have to go that way. When you get together, get that old junk out of here. That's not you anymore. You are a new creation in Christ, and that has no authority or say-so in your life. Now he says here, but... With the unleavened bread, with the pure bread of sincerity, and that probably is speaking to the heart, and truth, and that is speaking to the content. Anybody else in here hot? I am burning up. So now notice this, verse 9. I wrote you in my letter. I wrote you in my letter not to associate, not to mingle. Somebody took my fan back here. Shame, shame. Anybody got that? No. Okay. I saw a fan back there that you kind of bust open and fan yourself. We need some glory fans like the charismatic church. Somebody get those. Verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, here's what this tells you. It tells you that there is a letter before 1 Corinthians. There's zero Corinthians, but we don't have it. 
It was obviously not inspired by the Holy Spirit, so we don't have it in our possession. But in that letter, he wrote them emphatically about a situation. If you have someone who is sexually immoral in the church, you are to separate yourself from them. That sounds so unloving. That's how seriously God takes sin. Now, here's something that we've got to think about real quick. If we are commanded to separate from people who are sexually immoral in the church, there has either been a failure in communication of basic Bible doctrine on our half to new believers in order to nurture them and to bring them up on the word of God. We are at fault for that and we need to repent. Did Jesus not call us to go and make disciples? If you are not making disciples right now in your personal life, meeting with someone on a regular basis for prayer and Bible study to pour into one another so that we are all more devoted and committed to Christ, you are not operating according to the great commission that God commanded. Christ was clear. Every single person is part of this. No one is exempt. So I encourage you, get with one another and foster this discipleship relationship. Why? Because we don't need to be entertaining anything to do with sin in our midst to drag us away and pollute us before the Savior. Everybody with me on that? So notice, you're not to associate with sexually immoral people. Verse 10, I did not at all mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous, Wait, sexually immoral people, that's commandment number seven. With the covetous, that's commandment number 10. With swindlers, that's commandment number eight. Or with idolaters, that's commandment number two. For then, you would have to go out of the world. Now, this is interesting because this is the promotion of evangelism. When I told you not to associate with sexually immoral people, I didn't say everybody get together in a holy huddle and shun the world. Why? Because the world doesn't have the gospel. That's how they act. They don't know any better. They have never been told differently. And if the church turns their back on the world and is simply inward focused the entire time, no one hears the message of Christ. So I wasn't telling you to leave the world. That's not the situation. Go to the world. Tell the world. Associate with unbelievers. If you are somebody who has a weekly poker game and it's only with Christians, tell them, you need to go play poker with unbelievers. You can't play cards. That's of the devil. No, it's not. Being a bad steward of your money is of the devil. Playing cards is not bad. Neither is dancing. Won't hurt you. But find other people. You're in a bowling league. Get some lost people in there. Why? Because they're lost. You don't need another reason. They're lost. And they're not going to operate any other way than how Satan has carefully orchestrated this world for them to operate in. So they have got to have light in their midst to come in contact with. Now watch where he goes. He says here, verse 11, But actually... I wrote to you not to associate, same word as used in verse 9, to mingle with any, now here's a terrible thing going on in the translation, so-called brother. Everybody see where so-called is in italics? It's because it's not there. It is not there. What the idea means, what the Greek word is, you are not to associate with someone in the church who claims the name of a brother or sister in Christ. 
Now, claim the name meaning they're not really saved? No, I'm saying that they are saved people, and that is the designation upon them. In fact, if you have a New King James Version here, I believe they got a better translation. Anyone named a brother? He's saying if there's anyone amongst you that is named a brother or a sister in Christ, and they are involved in sexual immorality, those are the people that you don't mingle with. Mingle with the world. They can't do anything else but be sexually immoral. Those charismatic fans are seeming more appropriate, aren't they? They can't do anything else but associate. or sorry, They can't do anything else but things that are sexually immoral. They're the ones who need the light of the gospel. But believers in Christ who already have the light of the gospel and have been discipled and set under Bible teaching and are growing in their faith, for them to commit these things, they are much worse off. Why is that? Because they know better. They're guilty upon guilty. Why is that? They know better. They know better. And so in order to get the point across, disassociation is commanded. Now watch what goes on here. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with anyone named a brother if he is a violation, uh, commandment number seven, sexually immoral person, or covetous, commandment 10, idolater, commandment 2, reviler, that means you're a slanderer, you slander people's reputations, violation of commandment number 9, or a drunkard, not part of the commandments, but still somebody who abuses wine in excess, or a swindler, commandment number 8, not even to eat, with, a such a, with such a one, you don't invite him over and you don't answer his calls when he wants to invite you over. You abstain. I'm sorry. I am commanded by God's holy word not to associate with you. Why? Because of your sin. And it's not just your sin that you're, you desperately don't want anything to do with and you're confessing it before the Lord. It's because you persist in it and you think there's nothing wrong with it. You know there is nothing godly. There is nothing of Christ in that type of action. None. So moving on. It says here, verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? That, 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 quite, that answer is nothing. Outsiders, God will take care of it. We have nothing to do with judging outsiders. And see, this is a reason why we can't get so upset about how the world acts. They're the world. That's how they act. That's what they do. Oh, I think it's terrible. It is terrible. It's sin. And it's showing us a clear picture of sin. And if the church was called to anything, it was called to be holiness and righteousness, the beacon of light of Jesus Christ amongst people like this. Guys, persecution is coming. I hope you know this. It is going to be legalized to persecute Christians. Will you hold fast to your Christ in that time? Don't answer. We're not there. Will you hold fast to Jesus when that moment comes? Will he still be your all in all when all is taken away from you? Something to think about because it's coming. Why? This world loves sin. And if this world has to legalize sin in order for everybody else to approve of it, they will. And they're on their way to doing it right now. The Equality Act, anybody seen this? It's not the Equality Act. The Equality Act actually mandates in there that it lifts the rights and privileges of the homosexual community, transgender community, lesbian community, whatever you want to say about that, over 
someone like you and me who would be here at church. Are you saying there's a difference between us and them? Yes, I am. Don't hide it. It's true. Be honest. Are you saying that we're better than them? Not at all. Not at all. I'm saying that we are in a position to be responsive to the Savior. And by participating in that behavior, making that choice, and that's very much what it is. They thought they were born that way. They are. They're born sinners. And that's how they choose to sin. And that's how I choose to sin when I sin. I sin in certain ways that I choose, but I'm still born to be a sinner. That's why I need Christ. There's where the message is missing. We're too busy cutting off the leaves. We haven't dealt with the root. That's the problem. That's actually the end of my sermon, so I can't go there yet. For what have I do have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? And the answer is yes. We should be judging those within the church regarding their sinfulness or participation in rampant sin. Verse 13. But those who are outside, God judges. And he actually quotes something from Deuteronomy 13. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. I encourage you to read Deuteronomy 13 sometime. And he's talking about as a community, Israel needed to deal decisively with sin in their midst and get it out of the way so that they could be holy unto God. God makes no apologies for this. Now, here's what's interesting is, in the essence of time, we're not going to hit this. But from chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, Paul deals with the problem of believers who would dare take their grievances in the form of a lawsuit in front of pagan worldly courts. And his whole point is, is that the church of God is the one who have the truth. And if they are redeemed in Christ, they have illumination to the truth. Why don't you bring your grievances before the church and let the church church sort them out? Let them deal through your issues with you to bring some peace and harmony to the situation so that Christ's name is not desecrated in any way. But when you take up this situation and you bring your grievances as a Christian to pagan law courts. You have smeared the name of Christ and there's a reason nobody should be at your church or respond to the gospel whatsoever. The church should be handling matters like that, not the law courts. They're not the ones that should be dealing with church problems or disputes between believers. The problem is, is that pride keeps that from happening. Arrogance keeps that from happening. Self, it's all about my rights and what I want. And it is scary the effect that that has on the church. But we will move into verse, uh, let's see here, seven, let's, let's start at seven. Actually then, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. And notice what he says, here's the solution. Why not rather be wrong? Do you know the answer to that? Because as a Christian, I'm so prideful, I gotta be right. I've gotta be right. I don't have time for wrong. I'm the one who has been I don't know, disenfranchised here. We start using big scrabble words. What does it really come down to? I won't allow my pride to accept defeat, so I would rather desecrate the name of Jesus Christ and heap ridicule upon the church of God so that I'm right and I win. There's no place for it. He says here, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Notice, it's really caused schisms in this church. Verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now let me be very clear. Number one, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is that clear? 
Number two, inheriting the kingdom of God is not the same thing as going to heaven when you die. Inheriting the kingdom of God deals with you being richly rewarded and commended because you trusted God's word over everything that this world wanted to throw at you and therefore you lived your life in accordance with what he's commanded in the New Testament, and therefore you will be richly received when you walk through those gates. You will be someone who actually inherits the kingdom, not just a citizen in the kingdom, you will actually inherit it. And that's what Christ is looking for, his metakoi, his partakers, his partners that he wants to share his future coming, literal, theocratic rule and reign over this earth for a thousand years. And he wants you and I to participate in it. But here's what Paul says. If you're involved in this mess, know this, you won't inherit it. You will be there. Why? Because you're saved under the blood of Jesus by faith alone, period. If your works have anything to do with it, your works have now become necessary for salvation. That's Catholicism, guys. That's not the Bible. And I think it's important to draw a dividing line and be very clear. That is not the Bible. That is not the biblical mandate of salvation. We all know it, right? God loved the world. He gave His Son. Whoever what? Believes. Never behaves. Always believes. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but has what kind of life? Everlasting. Everlasting. How long is that? Praise Jesus. We get it. And yet we want to stand across and look at somebody else or hear about their sin and go, well, obviously they're not saved. You don't know that. You can't see their heart. They might be a severely wayward Christian who has never been discipled. And maybe we should have been playing a role in building them up and edifying them. That doesn't mean we tolerate ongoing sin. That means we address them with truth and love. That's what that means. So with that idea in mind, let's pay attention. Do you not know, verse 9, that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that actually means, uh, excuse me here, what do we have here? Uh, The idea of adultery being in line, so there you have your your idea of pornos is the idea. Uh, Those who are immoral, sexually immoral, fornicators, nor idolaters, there's a violation of commandment number two, nor adulterers, those who are unfaithful to their spouses, violation number seven. And here's an interesting word, nor effeminate. Now that's a violation of commandment number seven. But Paul was very specific about what he's getting at here. Pay attention. The effeminate would be those who are on the receiving end of a homosexual relationship. Notice the next one after this is, nor homosexuals. Those are the ones who are on the proactive side of a homosexual relationship. In other words, guys, he's getting both partners that are involved in the same sin. He wants to make sure that you are emphatically clear that both sides will not inherit the kingdom of God. There will be no rich reward for them when they walk in. They will actually suffer loss, as 1 Corinthians 3.15 says, before their Savior. I don't know about you, but the last thing I want to do when I stand before Jesus is say, well, I got nothing. That's a pitiful existence. That is a squandering of the current stewardship that we've been given. And guys, we have so much light It is ridiculous. There is no reason why we should be so appeasing our flesh that we cannot cast ourselves at the mercy of Christ and see Him as everything and all that we would ever need. 
so that he would live his righteous life through us. Nothing at all. It says here, verse 10, nor thieves, violation of commandment 8, nor covetous, violation of commandment 10, nor drunkards, again, not mentioned, but still there, uh, nor revilers, violation of number 9, those who are abusive to other people, nor swindlers, violation of number 8, will inherit the kingdom of God. And notice that he starts that and he ends with that. And this is what's normally called in scripture as viceless. And if you want another one, it's Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21 that you can look at there as well. But this is talking about believers who are participating in worldly behavior and therefore will not be richly recognized whenever the kingdom comes down to the wire. It says here, verse 11, such were some of you. That's who you used to be. But you were, what's the word, church? Washed. You were cleansed. But you were, what's the word? sanctified that means you've been set apart by jesus when you became to believe in jesus he set you apart positionally how about the next one but you were what is it justified you were declared righteous in god's sight in the name of the lord jesus christ and in the spirit of our god but notice you can have conduct that is not corresponding to your standing of righteousness before him now let's finish this up verse 12 All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. It may be legal to smoke weed, but it does not help you. It helps you lose your job. That's how it helps you. But it does not benefit you. Gay marriage may be legal, thanks to the ruling of our Supreme Court, but it is not beneficial. It's beneficial because... They like to keep companies like Cialis in business. Do you realize that's one of the biggest users of the drug Cialis that is normally prescribed for erectile dysfunction in older men? The homosexual community, young men, are actually the ones who use that the most. Now use your imagination and think of the reason why they would want to do that. But notice, further degrading, persisting in the degrading and dishonoring of their flesh with one another. That's the idea. This is where we are, folks. Let's not act like it's not reality. This is the mess we're dealing with. This is the darkness that needs the light of the gospel. Does everybody see this? Living for other things, man. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me. They may be legal, but I will not be mastered by anything. I will not allow anything else outside of Jesus Christ to have authority over my body. Here's Paul's commitment about things. It may be legal to do it, but is it okay with Jesus? There's a question we never asked, is it? Well, the law says it's okay. You know why that is? Because when we say things like that, we have automatically elevated government to Savior. Government is not God. Jesus is God. His opinion matters above and beyond whatever we think our vote might matter. Verse 13, this is a phrase that they would use in Corinth. Food is for the stomach and stomach for the food. Anybody feel like that right now? Okay, just making sure. Notice what he says, but God will do away with both. Stop living by your cravings and your appetites. There's no truth in that. Don't be all about what you can do to fill you. God's going to deal with those things. He says here, yet the body is not for sexual immorality. Everybody repeat after me. My body is not for sexual immorality. See, now you can tell everybody. We went to church today. We said dirty words together. It was amazing. So notice this. I'm just trying to keep you guys light, okay? This is such a serious subject. 
Yet the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Everybody see your flesh right now? It's not yours. You get to use it. And sometimes we abuse it. But it belongs to another. It's on loan. This is a Mercedes that someone has graciously allowed you to drive for a time. I'm pretty sure he wants it back in pristine condition. <laughs> oh, what was... My bad, go ahead and wreck your body. He's okay with it. He wants it back. We are stewarding it. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. Notice what it says. And the Lord is for the body. What if all the frustration that some people feel about channeling their sexual immorality into other people, whether it be using other people, womanizing people, abusing other people, looking at pornography, participating in homosexuality, having sex outside of marriage, I don't care what it is, but all those things. What if those things instead were turned around and channeled towards Christ? Do we really believe that Christ is all sufficient to save us from a destiny in the lake of fire, but for some reason he can't curb the body's cravings? Are we not familiar with Romans 8.13? By the Spirit is how you put to death the deeds of the body. Why? Because if you live by the body, by the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, there will be life and peace. Maybe sometimes we sit here and wonder, how come I don't have any peace in my life? It might be because we haven't allowed for the Spirit of God through the Word of God to slay the cravings of the body so that we are desiring infinitely more. I love what C.S. Lewis says. We are too easily satisfied by things like sex. We just, oh, that's so amazing. We're all raptured in it, and we're all, mm, it's so amazing. I feel so worth something. No, you don't. You think you do. Because it's based on a feeling in the moment, yes? What happens afterwards? Nothing. Say that again. It's good. You crash. That's a good way to put it. 90 miles an hour headlong into a brick wall. Exactly. We are too easily satisfied by those things. And because we strive for those things, we leave no room for Christ to be everything He is. Not that He can be, that He is and that He wants to be in our lives. Moving on. I know i got to get us out of here. Verse 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord but will also raise us up through His power. There's the rapture of the church. He has guaranteed your end. Your glorification has actually been predestined by Him. Romans 8 is clear to tell us that. He says here, verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Do you know that? Do you believe that? Let me ask you that. Do you believe that that's true? Now notice what he says here. Shall I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Does that sound like a good idea to anyone? He uses, may it never be. And what that means is, no! It is the strongest way to say no. If you pick up the translation of the Espanol, no way, Jose! Upside down exclamation point. It is clear. That's not the way to do. Would you ever do that? No. So why do you do that? So why do we entertain those lusts and try to join them to ourselves when our body's not our own? It belongs to the Lord. Notice what he says, verse 16. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? 
For he says the two shall become to one shall become one flesh. Notice he goes back to before sin entered the picture to let you know what this relationship looks like. Don't violate this. Don't cheapen this. Don't reason through this. Don't compromise this. It's too special. It's too sacred. Notice what he says, verse 17. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. And I love this. Verse 18. Flee. Flee sexual immorality. You know what that means? It means the building is on fire and run for your life. It's Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Ooh, baby, come here and hang out. No! And run! Get away from it! If you are addicted to online pornography, take your computer out in your front yard right now, pour gasoline on it, and set it on fire. You don't need it. Oh, you're just playing. You're so funny. I'm not. We will be scared to death how Satan is all up in the business of the Christian and we don't even know it until we resist the very sin that he's made us accept as being okay in our lives. You want to know if the struggle of sin is real? Do without it for a while. If that stuff has got a hold on your bodies, I've actually seen reports of clinical tests that show that breaking an addiction to pornography is worse than trying to withdraw from crack cocaine. It does something to your brain. And it is rotten from the pits of hell, let me tell you straight up. I have dealt with way too many men who have this problem going on in their lives. And pleading with them, get this taken care of before the Lord, before you bring a woman into this relationship. Sadly, many don't even see the value. It'll be okay. I got it under control. Stop trusting your flesh. It leads to death. It leads to death. Notice, flee it. Run. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. Are some sins worse than others? Yes. Sexual sin is worse than others. Why is that? Because you've brought your own body into the situation. We lie, it's outside the body. It's an evidence of what's in the heart, but it's outside the body. But when we start sleeping around and stewarding ourselves in ways that God has completely forbidden sexually, we violated our own bodies. We violated the vehicle of stewardship that God's put in our possession. Let's finish this up. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple? Your body, my body, is a sanctuary. It is a temple. Where's the sanctuary at church? Right here. Tell a visitor that. That'll be a fun conversation. Right here. That's where it is. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Church, what is the price that we've been bought with? Christ's blood, the precious, sinless blood of Jesus Christ dying in my place, a death that I very much deserved a million times over. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, if that's the case, if you have been bought with the blood, glorify God in your body. Steward your vehicle that is the Lord's that he has entrusted to you in holiness and blamelessness. Is there salvation for the homosexual? Absolutely. Can a Christian be gay? Yes. Disobedient? Absolutely. Without a shadow of a doubt. And should we love them enough to have that conversation? Absolutely. 
Some struggle with same-sex attraction. They need our prayers. They need grace. They need to have constantly repeated to them the blood of Jesus Christ, the gospel. For in it, the righteousness of God from faith to faith, from justification to sanctification. And when it is embraced for all that it is, the righteous live by faith. That's the answer to this problem. We're so busy trying to get them ungay. We're trying to de-queer people. You don't do that. Why? Because we're not sin fixers. That's called legalism. If you got them to reject the lust of their flesh because they think they need to abide by your standards, but they're still destined for the lake of fire, what did that accomplish? Nothing. There's tons of moral people that are going to go to hell. Hell's going to be filled with moral people. Hell is going to be filled, filled with the greatest legalists that you've ever seen in your life. But those that are accepted before the Lord are going to be those who came to the Savior and said, I need you. Only you are the answer. By faith and faith alone. I would hate to think that we have pushed away an entire mission field because we disagree with a conduct that this world wholeheartedly accepts and encourages. When we have the answer, not to convert them, as far as conversion would be from being gay. That's not the idea. All kinds of states have laws against conversion therapy. I think that's where we're making the mistake. Let's worry about converting their hearts, not their behavior. Convert their behavior, the heart is still dark. Get away from that. Guys, every single person in here has a responsibility to share the gospel of Christ. Why is that? Because God is so full of love, He is long-suffering. He desires for no one to perish. Ezekiel 18, he says it twice. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. If we only had the heart that God has for this community of people to love them, to look beyond it. Well, I don't agree with that lifestyle. You don't have to. But they're a person. Jesus died for them. So love them. Encourage them towards Christ. You don't have to compromise who you are or the truth of who you are at all. If they hate it and they don't like it, that's on them. Don't stop being Christ's servant. If right now you're thinking in your mind or in your heart, sexual immorality, if I had to be honest, that's me. Let me tell you this. You are not too far gone to be rescued, to be delivered from that lifestyle. There is nowhere that you can sin that Christ cannot reach. There is no iniquity that is deeper than His grace. It's impossible. And He is desiring, craving, looking for the opportunity to rescue us out of those situations. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Okay. So let's make sure that our prejudices are not in such a way as to where we are rendering our great God and Savior is ineffective. And let's be the representatives of Christ that we have been called to be to stand up for righteousness, to be uncompromising as far as sin is concerned, but to be relentless in love because we actually have a truth worth people knowing. It brings people from death to life. Pray with me. Father, if we have 
in some way as a church shortchanged your reach. Some people are, are just so defiled that you cannot redeem them. Father, help us to recorrect our thinking and orient it toward your grace in the Scriptures. Father, I pray that if we are struggling sexual sin, we would recognize the Savior beckons us to come. Come back into fellowship to confess this stuff. To get it out of the way. To remove those strongholds in our life. That you are infinitely loving. Your mercy is abounding beyond where our minds want to set up roadblocks. God, you are incredible. And I pray, Lord, that we would not shortchange you or discredit you in any way, but recognize your infinite love for people. And we have the great, amazing opportunity right now to be the light, to be the difference in people's lives, to be bearers, light bearers of the good news of the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross. How powerful it is that you have taken care of every sin. Father, be with us throughout this week. We don't know what opportunities will come our way. We don't know what temptations the enemy will place before us. But I pray, Father, give us a glimpse of Christ, that our life is hidden with Him in You, that we are to set our minds on things above where Christ is seated, that He is the satisfaction for our sins and not for our sins, but for the sins of the entire world, that He is able to present us as holy and blameless in His sight that we can be that way in love with one another. Father, the Gospel is so much more glorious. Your saving work is so much glorious and sometimes what we give credit to. Change our hearts and help us to realize how grateful we need to be that we have the truth of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Please bless our weeks. We pray it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.